ABC News reports that in June of 2022, while Trump's lawyer Evan Corcoran was searching that storage room for classified documents, Trump allegedly asked a longtime Mar-a-Lago employee to change the lock on a closet door that the Secret Service had previously managed. And Trump wanted the key. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 68 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation. I am not a lawyer, but to be a radio host in 2024 means to play one on TV a lot, though. A couple of times I did consider going to law school. Once was when I was working on Capitol Hill for my predecessor in Congress, Chuck Schumer. 22 or 23-year-old, I'm not sure what I was, but I devised exactly the kind of plan that I bet many of you guessed I would have. The first prong of my attack was to apply to the very best law schools in America, like Harvard and Yale and the like. Mind you, I had taken the LSATs and done respectably, but not amazing. Chuck Schumer used to brag that he got a perfect score. I certainly didn't. And I had graduated from that citadel of Clinton County, New York, Plattsburgh State University with just barely a B average. So as a middle class white Jewish guy whose only interesting life experience was filling out that application from 128 Cannon House office building where I was the about the 11th in charge, I took the posture, if they don't want me, then I don't want them. Unsurprisingly, they didn't want me. So the next prong of my half-serious plan to become a lawyer was actually more serious, and dare I say it was even smart. This was the mid-1980s, and there was a congressman representing South Florida called Clay Shaw. His district was Fort Lauderdale. He was a Republican. I decided he had to go. At the time, I was or it was already obvious what we know now to be a fact of life, that with each decennial census, more New Yorkers were leaving the state and more of them were going to places like Arizona and especially Florida. So as a 20-something, already thinking about a political career, I was faced with the inevitability that there would be fewer seats to run for in my home city of New York City and more in Florida in the 1990s. So where can a Jew from Brooklyn get elected? Either Brooklyn or South Florida, I figured. Clay Shaw, an anti-choice, anti-gay rights Republican, not only represented South Florida, but he ran unopposed in 1986. Unopposed. I didn't have any roots or connection with the district, but I, if I were to move there and run there, I was sure I was better than nobody. That was going to be my slogan, by the way, vote for Wiener, he's better than nobody. What does this have to do with me going to law school? Well, I had to do something while I was in Florida, while I was getting ready to run for Congress under this plan. I would go to law school in the district. I think it was Nova University. It might have been Stetson University. Anyway, I applied. Let's just say the Nova University is not the most competitive law program in the world. I was accepted. I was all ready to give the world just what it needed, another lawyer. I should pause here and acknowledge that my dad was a lawyer, and he never once said over the dinner table, come here, you'll love this law stuff. But anyway, what ultimately upended the plan was, and whatever butterfly effect might have occurred had I done it, there were two people who kind of said not so fast to my plan. One was the governor of Florida at the time, Bob Graham. He was running for the United States Senate, I think it was in 1986, against the incumbent, Republican Paula Hawkins. I was going to go down to Florida, and as my first act on the scene, I was going to go to work for that Graham campaign, show them how amazing I was, and also get to know the lay of the land there in South Florida. 
I asked Chuck to call Graham and regale him with stories of my brilliant exploits as a junior Capitol Hill staffer or something. Graham, who I repeat, was the governor of the state. Apparently, he had plenty of his own smart-ass kids to staff his campaign with and turned me down. But the more important veto of my plan to take Florida and law school by storm was Chuck. Only in his 30s at the time, uh, Chuck laid some wisdom on me. Sure, he said there'd be fewer congressional seats, but he reminded me that there would be plenty of open city council seats or state legislative seats. Maybe, just maybe, I should see if one of them opened up before I started picking out congressional districts 15 states away. He suggested I return from D.C. to go to work in his community office on Kings Highway in Brooklyn, and the big plan gave way to a better one. I was elected to the city council in 1991 and to Congress in 1998. Funny footnote to this whole lawyer thing. When I got to D.C. as a congressman, freshly elected, I was offered little input into what committees I was placed on. I was assigned to the Judiciary Committee. When I asked why, Dick Gephardt, who was then the Democratic leader, told me, well, I was a legacy. Chuck Schumer served on the committee and chaired the crime subcommittee and led the defense of Bill Clinton in the impeachment. Before him was Liz Holtzman, who served on the Judiciary Committee and rose to fame as a Watergate hearing leader. And before her was a guy from my district whose name is literally on a courthouse, Emanuel Seller, who served for nearly 50 years from 1923 to 1973. He served as the dean of the House, the most senior member of the House from 1965 to 73. Most importantly for this conversation, Seller chaired the Judiciary Committee for 11 terms. So obviously... I would be the next on the Judiciary Committee. Then I told him something he apparently didn't know. I wasn't a lawyer. This was the Judiciary Committee after all. He hemmed and hemmed a little bit, and then he called me back about an hour later and says, it's okay, the Republicans also had a member of the committee who wasn't a lawyer, Mary Bono, wife of Sonny Bono. Admit it, you didn't expect his name to come up in this podcast. Anyway, I am not a lawyer. I say all this just because as wars teach us about geopolitics, Everyone is suddenly an expert on the Houthis this week. High-profile legal cases force-feed us the elements of the law, and elements of the law, anytime there are those being force-fed, there's talk radio to help us yell about them. This is another big week for those cases, for three of the big legal Trump cases. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court will hear arguments on whether the 14th Amendment means that Donald Trump is not eligible to be president again. The question of whether the insurrection clause with references to government officials, in quotes, means that the president, and if it does mean the president, is that the courts or the legislature or elected officials of some sort who would be making the decision on whether Trump gets on the ballot. The reaction of the justices to the arguments are going to be pretty good tell. So we should get an indication for where they're going to go, at least an indication this week. Something to keep an eye on there is the role of this years-long research and paper that was done on this very issue by members of the Federalist Society. And it concluded that it wasn't a close case at all, that indeed Trump is banned from being president again. The two professors who wrote that paper are active members of this conservative Federalist Foundation. They're proponents of originalism. And this same method of interpretation that seeks to determine the Constitution's original meaning, well, the majority of the court claimed to have those same beliefs and came from the same tree of thought and were either put forward by the same authors of this paper. Let's see what rhetorical gymnastics they do to satisfy the outcome they surely want, which is keeping the Trump train going. 
We should also hear this week from the state court judge who's deciding how much Trump has to disgorge, as they say, for his ill-gotten gains with unlawful conduct, the fraud he committed. The fraud was already proven and decided in this case. So this is just about how much Trump pays in cash and any extra penalty he may have to endure, including possibly having to pack his bags and stop doing business in New York State at all. And finally, yesterday, almost a month after it was argued in the D.C. Court of Appeals, the highest court before the Supreme Court, they unanimously ruled that Donald Trump and all presidents are most certainly not immune from prosecutions for crimes they commit while in office. It was a pretty far out claim. It was questioned to the point of ridicule when heard by the court. But it took the court a long ass time to pump out a decision. But the delays are not over. The district court, which is hearing the January 6th insurrection case, still has to wait. And while it's nice to have a 50-something page decision that says the obvious yet important thing that Donald Trump is not above the law, it is certain that his lawyers will appeal to the Supreme Court. And they may first go to the full en banc court to hear the case, again requiring the trial court to wait and wait. All this waiting isn't a bug. It is a sad feature of the Trump plan. And my non-law school, non-lawyer understanding of this sees a weakness in the internal checks of our justice system. We have this notion that even laymen know, justice delayed is justice denied. Without looking that up, I imagine it refers to the idea of holding someone for a crime indefinitely as a bad thing. The Sixth Amendment guarantees a speedy trial. But what Trump is showing us is that there are loopholes. The Trump two-step is first delay and then fill the extended delays with disinformation. He can do this because of two factors that play into his hands, and one is money. So long as the suckers keep giving him money to pay his lawyers using long-shot legal, long legal maneuvers, it's literally free for him to keep doing this. Trump has spent $76 million of money his supporters have given him over the last two years or so. For his elections, they've been using it on the legal defense. So you might be saying, yeah, so what? Of course, rich people have advantages in being able to afford elements of defense that someone else might not. But the difference here is that it's hard to imagine the Supreme Court not hearing every last crazy suggestion that Trump lawyers propose. And that knowledge that your case will be heard and heard and heard by people pre-vetted for their intellectual compatibility means months of delays. In normal cases, Taking implausible positions would be handled pretty quickly. In fact, a lawyer can get in trouble for making arguments or appeals simply for the purpose of slowing things down. And judges as a group are pretty obsessed about keeping their proceedings moving on schedule. So we wait while literally every court in the federal judiciary hears these arguments that are not even allowed to have judges and juries hear a criminal case that involves a president. And even after he leaves office, we wait and we wait. So how does this strategy look in the very straightforward case of, say, Donald Trump stealing documents he wasn't allowed to have, refusing to give them back, ordering his staff to hide them, and then just for good measure, showing them to people who weren't allowed to see them? Well, this one is called the Mar-a-Lago documents case. You heard a cut at the top of the show about the latest little bit of news from that case. One of the places that the FBI was supposed to look, they didn't look because only Donald Trump had the key. Yeah, I'm sure that stymies FBI searches all the time. Sorry, fellas, you can't look in there for evidence of a crime because the person who may have committed the crime has the only key. Yeah, and they say the FBI is biased against Donald Trump, right? Anyhow, this is a simple case. Someone stole something. 
No intricate conspiracy or questions about state of mind like the other cases. So does the delay tactic work in this case? It's about making arguments that you would summarily be laughed out of court if it were any other defendant and maybe any other judge. For one, his lawyers are making the argument that none of the stuff he stole is that important anyway. So I guess this is the no harm, no foul defense. He tried the same argument, by the way, in the fraud case in New York. The idea that it's okay to break the law if you can show that nobody minded, it's not an argument that any judge in the land will let you get away with. But the delays in that case have come from this other argument that Trump and his supporters make, bias. So if you're being charged with a crime and you ask to subpoena thousands of documents and interview hundreds of people that have nothing to do with the case because you want to prove bias exists and that your prosecution is politically motivated and thus selective, a hundred out of a hundred judges would, would uh, deny the motion and quickly move on. Well, actually one judge would not, the judge hearing the case in Florida. Eileen Cannon has not actually delayed the case yet. She's a clever one. She's announced the trial date of May 20th, and that's still technically on the books. But instead of putting some time limit on these preliminary motions, which is usually done, when they have to be argued and decided, she's just set a date to talk about them on May 1st. She has been delaying even when she will announce the delays. She and Trump will have more opportunities to delay since there is one element to this case that isn't pro forma the presence of classified documents. There is a whole law about how trials are done when classified documents are involved. Since juries and the public can't see them and even lawyers are sometimes are banned from seeing them, there is this thing called SIPA, I think it's called, the Classified Information Procedures Act. And that gets followed in cases like this. And it usually doesn't cause much of a delay unless you have a delay-minded defendant and a pliant judge. Speaking of that judge, Eileen Cannon, of all the judges, prosecutors, juries, court clerks in all of the Trump cases, you will never hear Trump utter a crossword about her. And during the delays, another thing that you won't usually see in our criminal justice system is the nonstop, insanely high-profile lying campaign about the case, about its prosecutors, its investigators, its witnesses, and even about the judges. Now, not being a lawyer, did I mention I wasn't a lawyer? Not being a lawyer, I assume that poisoning the jury pool, intimidating people involved in your case was a pretty serious no-no. There is always the tension between what people hear and they think they know about a case and the solemn and rules-based ways that a trial is held. And I have some confidence in the juries that will hear these cases. We have nothing else but to be confident in them. But I also see the corrosive effect that this is having on the perception of those cases and the system in general. I get calls to the radio station all the time that reflect this sensibility of, I don't care what the laws are or what the evidence is, Trump is being set up. Or this other thing, Trump is allowed to have those things that he stole. The two-part hustle of delay and then lie loudly is a test for the system that I'm not sure it's passing right now. The odd thing about this is this emperor, emperor has no clothes element to it. Can't everyone involved stipulate to the idea that having these trials quickly is in the interest of the public and in of the judiciary itself? Trump is demanding special treatment because he's a candidate for office, he says. He says it out loud that he shouldn't be prosecuted because it's an attempt to get in the way of the public's right to choose a president, however they want. It is time for the prosecutors to acknowledge that speed is of the essence when Jack Smith suggested that the claim of Trump immunity go directly to the Supreme Court for the extent of time, he was careful not to say why. I get it. 
He doesn't want to play into Trump's hand by acknowledging that the election is a consideration. But why? Don't voters have an interest here? Shouldn't they know if one of the candidates is guilty of one or more of the 91 accounts against them? Bloomberg and Morning Consult released, Consult released an interesting poll last week, found 53% of uh, respondents believe that uh, in these key states that they would refuse to vote for Trump if they knew that he had committed a crime. Another way of stating this is that the courts have control of a piece of information that our citizens of our country find so important that it will decide their vote for the most important office on earth. Do the judges have zero obligation to that imperative? Should they keep ignoring this obvious thing? Perhaps the easiest footing for these judges is to slow walk this. Give the ultimate indifference to this volatile defendant and his volatile supporters to remove any pretext for more volatility. But what about the other 80% of us? We have an interest here. Let's say we move it along a bit, huh? Even us non-lawyers can see that that would be best. And we'll be right back with Ask Anthony Anything. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So this is the part of the podcast when I respond to something, really anything. A lot of time it's in the category of something that a politician or a media person says that doesn't get the response I think it should. So I try to be of service. I find one category of fail particularly galling. It's the genre of a politician not answering a tough question, but either filibustering or swerving to safer grounds for the words he or she wanted to say. I know it's a bit of an old and fairly cliche to be beefing about. But from time to time, the format, the journalist, the issue or something makes the exchange go in a completely satisfying direction. This week, I want to let you hear an exchange that has everything. Real chemistry. A great reporter asking a fair question in a format that real follow-ups are permitted and perhaps most satisfying, a dishonest politician being held to account. Let me set it up for you. The show is CBS News Miami's program called Facing South Florida, and you've seen shows like it, public service kind of shows. The host is asking questions is a hat called Jim DeFetti, and the person being interviewed is a Republican congresswoman from the 27th District in South Florida, Maria Elvira Salazar. We enter the chat as Congresswoman Salazar is bragging about the funding she brought home to her district. It's about one minute and 54 seconds. It's pretty long. But I think it's worth it to let this marinate and cook in full. Take a listen. Last month, you were at FIU and you presented a check for $650,000 to help small businesses at FIU. But you voted against the bill that gave the money that you then signed a check for and handed and had a photo op, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023. Right? You voted against that bill. I, I, right now, you have to give me more details, but I do know that every time I have an opportunity to bring money to my constituents, I do so. I well, just did four hundred thousand dollars. But look, well, let's you, go. But you voted against you voted against the Chips and Science Act, right? 
Listen, I, right now I need to I need to ask my staff. But you know, what do no, we look you, at you, the forty million dollars that I have brought to this community? No, what's, what's, Aren't you proud of me? Aren't you proud of the forty million dollars that I brought? Much, but how Aren't much? Aren't you proud that I wrote the Dignity Act? Haven't I? I let's talk about the Americas. Wait, Act. wait, wait, wait. Let me one second. Tell me, the money that you talk about, the forty million dollars that you bring back to the district. Sometimes that money comes from bills that you voted against. You voted against the CHIPS Act, and yet you praise the fact that the South Florida Climate Resilience Tech Hub is going to be started in Miami, right? You voted against the infrastructure bill, and you talk about all the money that comes back to the airport. So at the same time that you're taking credit for the money that you bring back to the district, in Washington, you're voting against these projects on party-line votes. Listen, I, that was, I think, last cycle. I cannot really remember right now, but just look, let's look at the America's Act, which is what I'm going to, which is so what I would like. You don't want to explain why I, you I vote really against cannot, I mean, right now, and I'm not trying to be a politician, is so many bills that I've introduced that I know that no, many of them. these are bills that you voted against. The, that I understand. And, but it's, okay, sometimes I vote bills. and sometimes I don't. But let's look at the positive. Let's look at the $40 million that I brought. That was pretty good. Look, politicians are hard to root for. As are media people sometimes, we both suffer from, let us say, credibility issues. But part of the reason that exchange jumped out at me, and to be honest, got a lot of oxygen online, is that it was the rare occasion when the reporter did exactly as we wish they would all do, demand an answer. And the element was about a real thing. Politicians who go to Washington and promises of getting things done, or at least trying, and then simply voting no on everything, refusing to participate in compromise or legislating, and then returning to their districts with contradictory boasts. I stopped all the bad guys, and I got all these great things for our district. That is indeed a contradiction in a 50-50 Congress. The only way you can get stuff for your country and your district is to work with the so-called bad guys. Now, it isn't hard to spot the phoniness of someone voting no and then taking credit for a bill that passed. It takes minutes of research, maybe even seconds if you ask Google the right question. So when a politician sends out a press release bragging about something they accomplished in D.C. or in their state, capital, or even in their local city council, chances are they're taking a well-deserved credit for doing their job in a democracy, working with others. Congresswoman Salazar had good reason to not even be prepared for the possibility that a reporter would point out that she railed against and voted against the very legislation that she was now taking credit for. Now, she's fairly new at her job. I think this is her second term or something. She cut her teeth in this time when there are fewer reporters asking fewer questions. And when they do, they usually uh, have not done that 30 seconds of Google searching. Look, I'm on radio. If someone calls in and tries to slip something in, I stop. I call it out. It's radio. We have a little more time. And frankly, I have a mute button. So what did Salazar learn? Did she and her staff learn this kind of phony can be caught? I doubt it. You can see it on the podcast. Uh, you can't see it on the podcast, rather, but you can see it on the YouTube version of this, which is now available. You can see her body language, the arrogance, the uh, affront of this reporter asking her questions and as about something as basic as whether she voted for a bill she was taking credit for. Now, she just learned not to go on facing South Florida if Jim DeFetti was asking the questions. But we all learned that she's a hypocrite who's bad at her job. And that's something. Good work, Jim. If you want to be part of this segment of the program or really just suggest anything or give me feedback, wienerwabc at gmail.com is the way that you can reach me. 
I want to thank Eric and Ricky for helping out so much to make this podcast a success. And if you liked anything or everything that you heard, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends and neighbors. If you have an opportunity to rate it, give it a nice rating. That's how people find out about the show. It was great having you along. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged. Unplugged.